what he wanted to see in those disciples and what he wanted to develop in them. And so the Greek term for disciple in the New Testament is methetes, which basically means a student or a learner. But a disciple is also a follower, someone who adheres completely to the teachings of another, making those teachings their rule for life and conduct. Now, you had the Pharisees, and they prided themselves on being disciples of Moses. They were still they were still rooted in the law, the Old Testament law of God. And and Jesus' followers, they, they were called disciples long before they were ever called Christians. So our Lord's discipleship began with a call and requirement for those disciples to exercise their will to follow him. It wasn't based on religious aptitude. It wasn't based on whether or not you can make an A plus on the theology written test. It, it was their willingness to follow him. These men he called to follow him were the last guys picked for theological dodgeball. You, you got to understand, they're the, they're, the, they're the kids you pick last, okay? They're not, their aptitude for, for theology was not high, but nevertheless, Jesus saw something in each and every one of them, and he chose them as his own. And then he spent three and a half years with these men. And when he died and resurrected and ascended back into heaven, these blue-collar workers with almost no formal education turned the known world upside down. Okay, how do you do that? How do you take some truck drivers and bulldozer operators and in three and a half years send them out and they totally revolutionize the world? That's crazy to me. It, it, it makes me think that maybe the way we do church in the West is off. But we'll save that discussion for another day. As I read the early chapters of the Gospels, I see Jesus speaking the same command to almost everyone he meets. You know what he tells them? He says, follow me. Follow me. You know, for decades, American Christianity has understood this phrase to mean Say a prayer of repentance and commitment to Jesus, attend church regularly, and just generally live a good life. But I don't think that's what Jesus intended. I think there's a problem with this. Jesus never led anybody through the sinner's prayer, followed by a command to attend church services, though attending church is, is a good thing. It's needed. But instead, what he said was, follow me. Follow me. What he meant was, uh, by the phrase, follow me, what he meant was forsake all that you have and, and, and have put before me and devote yourself to living life the way that I show you, according to my teachings and by my example. It, it's a call to become my disciple, he says. Let me show you a better way to live, free from the trappings of hypocritical living and dead religion. Jesus says, follow me into a life of service and love of God and love of other people. And you can trace that through all four Gospels. Jesus sought to bring transformation into people's lives. He wanted them to live a life that was all about him. So being a follower of Jesus is to put him at the center of your life. We need to understand that. He's not peripheral. He's not a Sunday-only Jesus. He's the center, or he's, he's, he's the Lord, at all, Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Okay? 
And so this is to make him the ruler of all that you are and all that you have and all that you do. It is to follow him as he leads you by his spirit out into the world as his representatives, as his ambassadors. And this is what he calls us to today. This hasn't changed from the first century. There's been no alteration in Jesus's commands, no revision. This has always been his call on the church. The question we have to answer for ourselves as 21st century Christians is whether we're going to heed and obey the call. That's the only question we have to answer. So with that, let's jump into the texts this morning and see this call from Jesus for ourselves all through these scriptures this morning. And uh, if you're just joining us, if if you're new to Emmaus Road, we're in a study of the harmony of the Gospels. And what we're doing is we're taking all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and and they're laid out side by side as the events happen in real time chronologically, okay? So we're in, if you have a harmony, you might have the section headings, it's section 47, but it's Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1. So Matthew 4, 18 to 22, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, they were casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, you ready for this? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. That's Matthew's account. Listen to how Mark phrases this. Same text, same account. Listen to what Mark says. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, and remember, Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel, but Peter was illiterate. He couldn't write down his gospel, so Mark was his secretary his amnesis. So we say it's the gospel according to Mark, but it's actually the gospel according to Peter. Mark just wrote it down for him, right? So this is Mark 1, 16 to 20. It says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. So here we've got Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, both hard at work for their father. They're out on the fishing boat, and they're in the very act of labor for their family and their livelihood. And yet this rabbi has the audacity to call them away from their full-time labor to become Talmudim, to become learners, to become followers. The plain fact of first century Jewish life is that these men could have been Talmudim of some rabbi or some Pharisee if, again, they had had the aptitude. If they had had the aptitude, but they didn't. Instead, they end up working for the family business. And there's no ambition here to rise above commercial fishing to ascend to some role in the religious community. And, And that lack of ambition that we see here is, I believe, one of the chief reasons Jesus chose these men. They weren't jockeying for position on the religious landscape. 
They were just being faithful with what they had. It speaks to leadership. See, often those who end up leading and, and leading well weren't seeking the position or status for themselves. Have you seen that? Have you observed that? Usually they're cultivating faithfulness in some other area of, uh, and, and the need arises and then they step in because there's a need. And then the inverse is generally true as well. Maybe you've seen this or, or witnessed this, but those who are blinded by ambition to lead others often actually lack the moral framework and the skill set to do it well. You seen that? Hey, just, you know, um, take a look at the U.S. government right now. Uh, if you need a working model of that, um, that'll become clear for you. It, it's almost, but it's almost like Jesus knows what he's doing. I don't know. And, and now these guys have a new occupation. They have a new calling. They're fishers of men. And you and I are here right now in this room because somebody before us took this call seriously, and we heard the gospel, and we believed upon Jesus. So now we need to proclaim and, and preach the gospel while there's still time. And so we just keep going into section 48. Let's just keep, keep rolling with the gospels here. Mark 1, 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. I just love that little extra comment there, <laughs> as if you couldn't deduce that's what he meant. Just not, like, not like the scribes, right? Um, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Who is us? Well, it's him and all the demons that are in him, right? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Now we see the parallel here, parallel passage, Luke 4, 31 to 37. Listen to this. See if you can pick up any, any little differences here. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Man, it, it seems like the inference is there was a drought of the word of God in that day. And, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit, uh, the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports of him went about into every place in the surrounding region. See, the synagogue was the place of instruction of the Torah, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And, and Jesus went to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath day, he went in, and he was teaching a group of Jews, and they were astonished. They were blown away by his teaching. Remember, Jesus has no pedigree. 
He's not been to rabbinical school. He's not ascended through the ranks of the Pharisaical uh, network, you know, rising up in that uh, context. He's just podunk, hillbilly Jesus. Born in a backwater from Granite Falls. And, and so he has no pedigree uh, to their knowledge. Well, he's at, we know he's actually the son of David. He's actually the heir to the throne of Israel. He's actually the son of God, the Lord over all creation. But he's just keeping that under wraps because he's humble. I love that about Jesus. He can go around flashing his badge being like, check me out. It wasn't like that. He's, he's humble. Remember, uh, we, we read here, there's a man with an unclean or demonic spirit. And it's not like unclean spirit just chose to go to synagogue because Jesus was coming that day. No, this, this was very likely a, an ongoing incident, which would seem to indicate whatever content Jesus was presenting um, was a contrast to the content that had been presented prior. Because there's no indication that this guy's demon issue had manifested in the synagogue, which means they weren't preaching the word hard enough. There was nothing to offend the demon who was in the synagogue. That's, that, that's bad. That's bad. <clears throat> Man, you just think it, it wasn't authoritative enough. It wasn't laden with God's own words. It was probably man's best thoughts about God. You ever been to a church like that? It makes me think of some dear friends who were recently here from out of town visiting uh, this area. And they remarked to Jen and me that they hadn't heard so much word in a sermon in a long time. And that made me really sad. And then it made me really angry. Many churches will affirm the sufficiency of God's word in their statement of faith, but they don't actually believe it. And the way you can tell that they don't actually believe it is you don't hear it in the preaching. You, 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 what you get instead is you get, get a pastor standing up in front of a crowd and telling stories for 40 minutes. What does that do? Other than entertain, get, you know, scratching people's itch. That's all it is. You see, many churches affirm sufficiency, but it's not, it's not really there. And here in this moment in the text, the living word, the living word, Jesus is preaching the written word, <laughs> and the demons can't handle it. It's like a double whammy. And, and Jesus isn't trying to make a name for himself or rile up the crowd for notoriety. There's no chutzpah here. There's no arrogance here. He's just telling the truth. When the word is taught accurately in context, it conveys its own power because the word is powerful. Th that is what we call the sufficiency of God's word. Here in Luke 4.32, the word possessed authority. It does the thing that God sent it to do. Let me give you three quick verses on the authority of God's word. Number one, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It's the, the gospel is the power of God. You go back to, go back to Isaiah 55, prophet Isaiah Chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. I love this imagery. I love it. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, just like the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but that they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So here's the picture. Hydrological cycle, right? The water comes down, rains come, snows come. The, the, the water 
nourishes the, the, the plants, the wheat, all the things that we grow to eat, grow, and then that runs down into the stream. The streams run down into the ocean. Everything evaporates back into the clouds, and the whole thing just keeps going, right? As we said, just like, just like it comes down, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that comes out of my mouth. It does not return to me empty, but it accomplishes that which I purpose and succeeds in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is sufficient. It's powerful. And then I'll just give you one more. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, Paul writing to Timothy about his faith and about his calling. He says this, he says, as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how since your childhood, you've been acquainted with the Talgrafe, the sacred writings, the, the Bible that existed in the time of Paul. He says, you, you're familiar with those writings. And then he says, um, those writings are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, all scripture, every word in your Bible is breathed out, theonoustos, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, or woman, may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's sufficient. It does what he says it does. So you want to be a good student of God's word? You don't need to go to cemetery, uh, uh, seminary. You don't need to. You can, you can study. <laughs> that was on purpose. You can study in the context of discipleship in the local church. And some of you are thinking, That's, that sounds pretty good. You, you know who could help launch you in that direction? If you're just like, I got to get in the Word. I'm just not in the Word enough. You know who could help you? Dan and Marguerite Wenceslau. Hang out. Where are you guys? Dan, Marguerite. Oh, back row. Back, back row Baptist. Um, they'll, they'll hook you up. You need to get in the Word. I, mean, I just don't have a normal reading. I'm not disciplined. They will help you. See them before you leave today. I'd love to introduce you to them, though uh, I'm sure you've already met them as you came in this morning, uh, especially Marguerite. She'll just run up to you and wrap you up, kiss you dead on the mouth. It's <laughs> best greeter we have. It's awesome. But in either case, um, can, can you just... Can you just hear like this demon's message, um, this whole thing in the in the synagogue, uh, this demon's message would have confused people, would have divided people. You can just hear uh, hear people saying, "Oh man, even the demons know who this guy is," and then other people are saying, "Well, that's a demonic deception. It's not really true because demons don't tell the truth." And then there'd be all this confusion. And in either case, it wasn't the place of demons to herald the Messiah's coming. So Jesus rebukes them and says, be quiet, right? So, I mean, you think about James 2.19. You believe that God is one? Hey, that's great. James says, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they, they quake. They shudder, okay? We have a real enemy who hates us, we, and as we walk in obedience to Jesus, especially as we walk in the Great Commission, we should expect opposition. We should expect it. That's, that's why we pray up before we speak up. 
And, and we've got some events on the calendar. I don't know if you know this. They're coming up in the next uh, two to four weeks. We're partnering with the city of Stanwood and the Chamber of Commerce for some events in August and early September. And we need you guys. All hands on deck. So, so pray up. Make ready your hearts. We're going to get involved with the city and what they're doing and be present there. And we're going to hand out gospel tracts. And we're going to talk to people about Jesus. And we're just going to love people with the love of Jesus. And, and we need you. We need you to participate. So we get to, sh- we get to share Jesus. This is the, if I could just really quickly, man, oh man, do we have to share Jesus? Wrong attitude. We get to share Jesus. We get to share Jesus with our community. Man, it's going to be fun. So we'll keep going here, section 49. And this is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all recording the same events. Uh, and so you'll, you'll, you'll get a little of the nuance here. Matthew 8, 14 to 17. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening when they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Mark's account, Mark chapter 1, 29 to 34, same incident. Here's how Mark phrases it. Immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then you have Luke's account of this. Listen to what Luke says. Luke chapter 4, 38 to 41. And he arose. He left the synagogue. He entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and and so they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who uh, who were sick with various diseases brought those people to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So here we have the account of Peter's mother-in-law healed by Jesus. And I don't know what your relationship is like with your in-laws. Mine's great, for the record. Judy, if you're watching, love you. Um, So I don't know. Peter's relationship with his mother-in-law, so we won't speculate, but Jesus rebuked the fever, and the word rebuke is translated to scold, sternly warn. So Jesus is giving orders to a physical condition. He spoke to sickness. Instead of praying to the Father about the fever, he spoke to the fever. He's talking directly to the problem. Jesus spoke to the fever, and it left, and that's amazing to me. And at this point, you might be tempted to say, yeah, that was, that was Jesus. But don't forget the words of John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, Jesus said, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. We lack power, folks. Our church, we're not, we're not operating in, in, in what Jesus has called us to do. I think we're afraid 
of it mostly. And, and, it, and it can get out of hand. It's, it's a little scary. But don't forget, all the miracles that Jesus performed were in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 10.38. That's the same Holy Spirit that lives inside every single born-again Christian. Same Spirit, right? Same power. And all of that is to say that sometimes the Lord has purpose in our hardship. The Lord has purpose in our suffering. There have been many times of prayer and rebuking and all that. And, and I don't know about you. I've, I've been through those times. Sometimes the sickness stayed longer. It, it, it didn't go away. Or that broken bone didn't heal instantly. Or our, our son didn't live. That's reality. That's reality. I just want you, I just say that because I want you to know I'm not detached from this reality as your pastor. I experience these things too, right? But in every circumstance that God is working all things together for our good, and that means what is good from his perspective. Not necessarily what we think is good. He's working all things together for our good, and that's from his perspective, not ours. And so we, we just continue on here with the text in section 50. And this is Matthew and Mark and Luke again, all three. Matthew 4, 23 and 24. So he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Mark says this, Mark 1, 35 to 39, he rose up early in the morning while it was still dark and he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. See, even Jesus needed to recharge. Even Jesus needed to be still in the presence of the Father. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and then they found him and they said to him, hey, everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went through all Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And then you have Luke's account, Luke 4, 24, 4, 42 to 44. And when it was day, same, same account, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and they came to him and, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I have to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So he's, he's, he's on mission. He's got laser focus. He loves the people that he has made, but he knows that he can't, can't stay uh, every place and, and, and give in to their desires and their whims, their, you know, what they think is best. Um, I was thinking about, uh, some of you guys know Nate Hedinga, who is our Converge Northwest di District Executive. Um, and, and he had a term for this when he was pastoring Cascade Church in Monroe. He called it the rhythm of the hunt. He's a, he's a hunter, and so it's natural that he would do that. He's just like this burly man person. If you've ever met Nate, he's just like, is that guy going to kill me or lead me to Jesus? I'm not sure. Um, he's kind of scary. But he, but he called it the rhythm of the hunt. And they had a room at Cascade when I was in residency there for 18 months where they charted all the events in the church throughout the year and what God did in those events and how he, uh, people coming to salvation, people being healed, whatever the circumstance was. They, so they had this room and, and they would write them on the walls 
And, and so you could go into that room and just walk in there and, and see the ebb and flow of ministry over 12 to 24 months and just see what God had done. I loved, I always loved having staff meetings in that room because it kept the why in front of everybody. This is why we do what we do. To be in that room and to, and to just sit through a staff meeting or to worship as a staff team was just so incredibly encouraging. I always enjoyed that. But the, the troughs, see, we, we, we're all about the peaks, right? We're all about the high, oh, that was a great event. That, was a, that, w- that went really well. And then we're not about the, the troughs, see? But it's all a rhythm. It's all, we need those troughs too, right? Um, so, the troughs are when things die down, and those are important for us too because burnout is a real thing, especially in ministry. And so you've got to find a rhythm of the seasons and pressing in and then backing off, right? And we need, to, we need time to, to be still and listen and just take the word in and let it refresh us and renew us. And, and, and so we need to be intentional in our rest. This is, this is the rhythm of the hunt. Yes, intense ministry, and then we need to rest for a while. It's why Sabbath is so important for us as Christians. We need one day a week to just disconnect from all the other stuff and just be with the Lord, be with our family, and rest, right? And for pastors and full-time ministry leaders, sabbaticals become part of that rhythm where, where we've gone for, you know, 10, 11, 12 months or longer, and we, we need to take some vacation time. We need to pull away for a couple of weeks or a month and, and just recharge. So um, this, is the, this is the reality of ministry and the rhythm of the hunt. And so um, all Christians, especially those in full-time ministry, need to develop rhythms of strategic rest and strategic outreach. And, and so here in the text, you've got um, both Mark and Luke have some variation of Jesus saying this phrase, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I was sent for this purpose. I, I can't not, that's terrible grammar. I, I can't not preach the gospel, right? Jesus is saying. He came to preach the word. He came to proclaim the truth. But in our culture, I don't know if you've been out talking to people on the street or at the mall or wherever or at Hagen. They don't believe in truth. Truth, truth. What is truth? I mean, it's like talking to Pontius Pilate everywhere you go. What is truth? It's crazy to me. I mentioned Pontius Pilate, quides veritas, what is truth? He didn't even know the, the embodiment of truth was standing right beside him at that very moment. It's crazy to me. I, I, I just want to encourage you. There's not too late to jump in on summer reading. Okay? We, we've deliberately done two books this summer to help people think through how to evangelize, how to engage with people who don't know Jesus. And we've just started the second book. We did The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven by Mark Cahill, which is a fantastic book. Mark Cahill is an incredible evangelist. You know what the one thing you can't do in heaven is? You can't share the gospel with unbelievers. Right? And we finished that book, and now we've transitioned. We've just begun Tactics with Greg Kokel. And what, what Tactics does is it gives us handholds for how to have those conversations, how to begin those conversations, where to take them when they raise objections. It's an incredible book. It's not too late to jump in on that thread. Read the book at your pace and just enjoy the comment thread as we interact with one another. 
I want to encourage you to do that. If we're going to engage in the Great Commission, we need to read and study books like, like these to think about how to engage our culture in these last days. We've got to be thinking about that intentionally. And so we'll, we'll just wrap up the text here with uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's boat, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Why don't you put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch? And Simon answered and said, uh, Master, we toiled all night, and we caught nothing. But at your word, we will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that the boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, listen to this, Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. I've, I've redirected your life. And when they brought the boats into land, they, they left everything and they followed him. So this is a really practical reason for putting out into the water. Uh, Jesus recognizes the sound carries over water and being out in the boat would allow him to be heard more clearly than if he's standing on the beach with a crowd all around him. And then this rabbi has the audacity to tell this commercial fisherman to cast their nets after having been fishing all night and having caught nothing. And, and, and Peter's comment confirms this. Look what he says. He says, I, I just love Peter's resolve here in faith. Um, he's like, okay, because you say so. It's the only reason I'm going to do this. I, I know this is not going to work, right? But because you said to do it. If there's any expert on fishing in the group, it's Peter. And yet he obeys Jesus' request. And the result is an abundant catch. And I think there's a pattern here for us. It's meant to be recognized and repeated. When Jesus commands us to do, we must do even if we don't understand. When Jesus says, do this thing, and we're like, I've done that before. It didn't work, Jesus. Or I've never, famous last words in the church, we've never done it that way before. Do it. Act in faith. And he comes through. And, and here's Jesus telling him to do something that's totally counterintuitive to everything that he knows. And yet he does it. And when we act in faith and not by sight, we experience an abundance of grace and a nearness to Jesus in relationship to him. And then Peter's response in all of this is to tell the truth about himself. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. As Peter then sees his own sin and his failures in the light of Jesus' perfection and grace, and it's humbling, to say the least. I mean, have you ever experienced that personally? Just had a moment where you see Jesus a little more clearly than you did, and you just feel like, oh, man, why do you even take the time for me? We need, we need those moments of humbling, and not just once. We, we need them. So Jesus brings this miraculous catch of fish, and he tells these men 
on the most lucrative day of work they've ever had, you got a new job. <laughs> You're going to be fishing for men. And these guys forsook everything that they had known. They began this new journey with Jesus. Uh, the word forsake literally means they turn their backs on their former lives. It implies a choice, a commitment. This was not a part-time project for them where they could change their mind in a few days and go back to being fishermen. They left everything. And by doing so, they're making a promise to complete the course and finish this new calling. By agreeing to follow Jesus, they consented to be his students, his learners, his Talmudim. And, and so they recognized him as their teacher and leader. They committed to follow them, follow him wherever he would go. And we need to hear that because you and I are called. You and I are called by Jesus. That same call is placed on us when we come to faith in Christ. And whatever else you do for a living to make money, great. But you are called by Jesus to accomplish his purposes in the earth so long as your meat pump is pumping in your chest. That's, that's our calling. I know that many American, church, American Christians like to create a false dichotomy between people who are saved and people who are disciples. But, but Scripture never does. And that's not to say everyone who puts their faith in Jesus in the New Testament quit their day job and followed Jesus around uh, Israel and then later followed the apostles around the Roman Empire. No. Many of them continued in their profession and they stewarded their homes and families, but they did it in the name of Christ and for the express purpose of making Jesus known to other people. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so we, lest we lapse back into our comfortable 21st century American mindset, Taking the gospel in obedience has always been costly. Always been costly to anyone who heeds the call. It costs us time, resources, sometimes safety, which we value above all things, and even sometimes our very lives. It costs us something. See, many people in the church today, many regenerated people intuitively sense that the truth, that obedience uh, has the potential for discomfort. They, they just know that that's there, right? The potential for harm, the potential for even death. But our security is in Jesus and what he's prepared for us in glory. Our security is not in our circumstances here, now. It's not in this life at all. And so the necessary consequence of those truths is that safety is not the indicator that you're on the right path with Jesus. We've got to get this out of our minds. Well, I feel safe. You may not be walking with the Lord because the Lord's not safe. Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Aslan's not a safe lion. This is, this is the reality. Our security is not in our circumstances. Our security is not in this life. And the necessary consequence of these truths is that safety is not the indicator that we're on the right path. Safety and security are illusions in this life. Jesus never promised them. In fact, you could take the word, you substitute the word peace in there and make it peace and safety or peace and security because that's what the world is clamoring for right now. Even the UN, that's a slogan. Did you know that? Peace and security? You know where we hear that in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5? 
Verse 3, in the context of God's coming again, while people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And here we are, even as the church going, peace and security, we just want to feel secure. Not going to happen. Not this side of heaven. Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I don't consider that I've made it my own yet. But there's one thing I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to, to the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. That's the call. We need to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are called by God himself to follow Jesus and to make him known to our neighbors and the nations. But the pressure's off. So you, Sadie, you're preaching. So I feel so buried under the weight of responsibility. Let me take the pressure off. Every salvation is a miraculous and supernatural work of God. We just need to share it. We just need to tell it. We just need to proclaim it. And we do that with a heart of love for the lost. Salvation is not dependent upon you. Take that weight off yourself. You need to get comfortable with people rejecting you, especially if you share the gospel. You go home. Did you know that's a, that's a positive outcome? Because Scripture says, blessed are you when people reject you, revile you on, on account of me, Jesus said. You share the gospel and somebody goes, you're an idiot. Get away from me. You're blessed. I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we go be jerks for Jesus to try to get more blessings, right? No, you can just be the nicest person, the most considerate, polite, present Jesus, and, and some people will still treat you like trash. And you're blessed. You get a blessing. Every salvation is a miraculous and supernatural work of God. It's up to Jesus to save people. We just present the message. We're just presenting. A show of hands, how many of you read along with us through, through the one thing you can't do in heaven? Some of you? One of you? Three? Three. Good. No, I know there were more. I know there were more. The pressure's off. I love what Mark Cahill said. In 20 plus, you know, I read this book. We went to see Mark Cahill um, when we were college students with our college group and heard him uh, talk about this. And then, and then, and that was years and years and years ago. And then just reading this book was so challenging for me again, just like it was the first time. But the pressure's off because the work of convincing and saving lost people is not on us. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He convinces hearts, not us. We just have to present the message. There's zero pressure on us to close the deal like we're presenting some kind of high-pressure sales pitch to people. Like, oh, you need to buy this timeshare. That's what it feels like. No, you, just, you just need to tell people about Jesus. Ooh, ooh, or like the time when you go on vacation to your uncle's timeshare and you have to sit through the presentation, right? We just did that. 
We just did that in uh, January when we went to Florida. Jen and I, we were like, we're going to go and we're going to upgrade to the, uh, the bigger place. And we know we're going to have to go through that hour-long ordeal, run the gauntlet with whoever this guy is. And so what we, here's what we said to each other. When we go in there uh, tomorrow morning and we have to do the thing, we're going to share the gospel with whoever is our person. And so we just prayed that night, and then we got up in the morning, and we went, and guess who we got? We got this guy who was a believer, and he was an immigrant from Cuba who had fled as a little boy from Fidel Castro's regime, and he loves Jesus, and we had the best time at a timeshare pressure sales pitch. It, in fact, it was supposed to be an hour. We were like an hour, 45 minutes. And his boss is coming around going, are you not done with these people yet? It was just incredible because in our hearts, we said, okay, whatever happens, happens, but we're going to, we're going to share Jesus. We're going to share Jesus. In heaven's economy, you don't get rewards for cowering in the corner. You, you don't, and you, here's the, here's the great news. You don't get demerits for trying regardless of the outcome. You try, whatever the outcome is, that's blessing. That's blessing. What a gracious God. He just wants us to open our mouths and talk about him to all the people made in his image. The saving part's up to him. But when people do put their faith in Jesus, then we must heed our Lord's call to disciple building. We can't just birth babies and leave them on the sidewalk. We have to care for them and nurture them and teach them. Because disciple building happens within the daily and weekly rhythms of life. It doesn't need to be centered around the church building. And praise God, because we don't have one. <laughs> right? Yet. Yet. Amen. But it can happen in homes, offices, restaurants. Discipleship can happen in coffee, coffee shops, in an open field, at the beach. Oh, this sounds better. Discipleship can happen at the beach or on my paddleboard at the lake. Well, okay, maybe I'm stretching it just a little bit. But it doesn't have to be in the, in the church building. And we shifted disciple building from an ongoing continual practice of living and yielding to Jesus. And instead, we turned it into just a content dump where you just need to learn all this information. We send people to Bible school, Bible college. You know why? Because the local church has abdicated the mandate to make disciples. We send them away because we don't know how. And for those who by default end up there, the pursuit becomes a mastery of a corpus or a body of knowledge and the mastery of information instead of the pursuit of knowing Jesus. And what God wants for us, it comes in the context of an ongoing relationship with him in the local church. If more knowledge is the goal, no wonder the American church has shifted the responsibility onto the Bible colleges and seminaries. No wonder. This means the church has abdicated its true calling in Christ Jesus. We need to aid and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ in their pursuit of Christ-likeness in any and every way possible. See, disciple building includes preaching and sharing the gospel with the lost. Not just building up the believers, but one of the ways we build up is as we share the gospel. Some of the most intense and incredible seasons of, of knowing and walking with Jesus have included for me lots of evangelism. And I'm talking late nights on the street with people that I would not normally socialize with. It's crazy. But disciple building is way more effective when it includes evangelism. You could make the argument that the Great Commission is the New Testament continuation and affirmation of Genesis 1.28. What did God say? Be fruitful and multiply. 
That's what he says in the New Testament. He just means it spiritually. Be fruitful. Multiply. Multiply the church. Multiply believers. It's interesting to note that the first directive that Jesus ever said to his disciple Peter was, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And the last thing Jesus said to Peter in John 21, follow me. He wants us to follow him. You know, we're coming to a period in time as we wrap up this morning. The book of Revelation details, we find that the church is gone from the planet Earth. God utilizes other means of communicating the gospel to those who are left behind. Do you know he uses 144,000 Jewish male virgins? That's pretty specific. Who can't be touched by the Antichrist? He uses those guys to take the gospel to the world during that horrific time. The book of Revelation says he uses a great eagle soaring in the sky, crying out the gospel message to the earth. He uses two witnesses in the city of Jerusalem to call people to repentance. And he does all of this because the church is not here anymore. Church is gone from the earth. We're with our betrothed in the wedding chamber. We're at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We are his bride. And I say that to say time's almost up. This is our last at bat. We need to swing for the fences, church. We're coming to the end. If you're here this morning and you never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to encourage you as strongly as I can that today is the day of salvation. You've heard the word of God preached. And if you're still unclear on the gospel, listen to me. It would be my pleasure to spend time with you, even today, to make clear anything that is obscured. Everything you have heard and experienced this morning has been by God's good design in order to bring you to the truth. Church, we got some work to do. We're coming to a six-week stretch of outreach and evangelism in our community. I need you prayed up and filled up with the Holy Spirit as we go to the people around us. It's all hands on deck. So let's petition the Lord together this morning. Father, we need you. We need you to fill us again with your Holy Spirit. We need you to assuage the fear that's in every heart, fear of man. It's crazy how it just comes right up out of nowhere whenever we start to think about telling somebody about Jesus. We can have conversations about the weather, about baseball, about any other thing, but when we start to talk about Jesus, the fear overwhelms us. Lord, would you suppress that? Would you let your, your, your holiness and your love for us be so overwhelming in our hearts that it would so greatly outweigh the fear that we experience that we would overcome it, step through it, and keep going and tell people about you. We ask for that. Even today, even as we go to lunch, even as we go back to our homes, there would be opportunities, even today, to make you known. And we ask for that in your name. Amen. Amen. You and I are here because someone before us took this call seriously. We heard the gospel. We believed in faith. Now we need to preach and proclaim the gospel while there's still time. In heaven's economy, you don't get rewards for cowering in the corner, but you also don't get demerits for trying regardless of the outcome. What a gracious God we serve. He just wants us to open our mouths and talk to him, talk about him to people made in his image. And the saving is his job, right? The Great Commission is the New Testament continuation of Genesis 1:28 to be fruitful and multiply. It's all hands on deck, church. We got work to do. Amasro Church, you are sent.